Truly, the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. And seeing the 200 or so teens up here singing, count me in when they number the ones who believe in him. How powerful and exciting and encouraging that is, especially to all you parents of teenagers. You know, I was uh, really um, encouraged by so many that had texted me, emailed me, and said that they're praying for me. And this afternoon, as I was, um, sister came up to me and said, oh, I'm praying for you. Another sister, oh, are you preaching tonight? She goes, wow, do you ever have big shoes to fill? I wasn't sure what I'm supposed to say. Thank you. Um, And as we laughed a little bit about that, I had to think, she's absolutely right. These are really big shoes to fill. And as we have been so blessed by the ministry of the word in this past week, I'm also thankful that it's not me that has to fill those shoes. It really is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we, I would like to invite him to fill those shoes. Let's do that. Father, we're so grateful that you have blessed us immensely, far beyond our understanding. And Lord, this evening, as we were so inspired by the teens that sung these beautiful songs, we pray, Father, as we would look into your word, you would inspire us anew that you would bring forth a message, and through your Holy Spirit, you would make it applicable to each one that is here in this evening and all those that would be listening online. Truly, Father, there are big shoes to fill, and we are so thankful that we can count on you to fill them. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I looked at the banner, as I came into the auditorium, I was taken aback at, as I looked at the word commit, and what stood out to me is that that is kind of written in a, what I would consider a, maybe a scary or a nervous font. It's like someone was writing and they understood that the word commit is actually pretty scary, but they also understood that that is probably the most imp- one of the most important words on there, and that's why it's underlined. I haven't talked to the artist who did the banner. This is my, uh, as, I, as I looked at it, as I <clears throat> thought upon the meaning of that, and isn't it true that committing is scary sometimes, makes us nervous, and yet it's so important But also notice that it says, commit thy way in the center way underneath that. Not only is it all caps, because that's also a central theme and the word Lord, but there's a bridge that goes across. And truly, when we commit our way unto the Lord, it starts with the first step, a step that's scary makes us nervous across a chasm as we go to the other side. But notice, it's not just one step. There are many steps to take to go across that bridge. And what do you see on the other side of that bridge? We don't see paradise. We don't see um, a nice beach. We actually see some rugged terrain at the, at, behind that. Because even when we fully commit our way into the Lord, it's not just a one-time thing. It's a continual committal that we need to make to follow the way of the Lord. And that doesn't mean it's easy. I'd like to look at a biblical narrative of a man that was called to commit his way unto the Lord. And boy, was he nervous. I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to Exodus, the third chapter. Just as a 
We'll read some select verses, verses from both chapter 3 and chapter 4. Just as a backdrop, as you're turning there, <clears throat> we're talking about Moses here. The first 40 years of his life, he grew up a life of great privilege. The prince of Egypt, a powerful man. In fact, we read um, Josephus, the secular Jewish historian, records several thousand years ago as he authored many volumes of history. He describes Moses as this, that he was a mighty man. In fact, before I read that, I want to quote Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, we read, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptian and was, a mighty, and was mighty in words and in deeds. Josephus gives us some of that insight as to what some of those deeds were. You see, as prince of Egypt, he was called upon to become a general in the army and to lead the Egyptians against the incursion of the Ethiopians who had started to take land away from the Egyptians and they were becoming victorious. And so Moses was called to lead the armies and he was victorious, not just because he was brilliant, a brilliant strategist, but also because he fought himself with great courage and with great strength. We see some of that in the previous chapter in, in Exodus chapter 2 as he single-handedly kills a taskmaster. He also, as he's trying to break up the fight among the Hebrews, they had no doubt that he could kill them as well. He says, are you going to kill us as well? And then when he was exiled... He goes off into the desert and he comes upon a place where the shepherds gathered to water their flocks, it describes in the, in the second chapter. And there were seven women shepherds coming to water the flock. And male shepherds came and chased them away because there were many and they were powerful. And what does the scripture say Moses did? He saw the injustice there and he stood in the gap and he chased those shepherds off single-handedly so we can see what a powerful man Moses was, not just as the prince of Egypt, but also extremely um, uh, gifted himself to be able to accomplish those kinds of feats. But now we pick up the story when Moses, another 40 years have gone by. He's in the desert, quiet, nomadic lifestyle, we pick up where God calls to him and gives him a great task and calls him to commit his way unto the Lord. Let's read about that in Exodus chapter 3. You could follow along. We'll begin our reading at verse 9. This is God speaking. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee, that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain." <clears throat> and Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come <clears throat> unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me, 
unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. I'd like to pause there for a few minutes. Now, some might say, well, Moses, you're just making excuses here. But let's put ourselves into his shoes. You see, Jesus himself said that we should count the cost before we commit our way unto the Lord. And I think Moses was doing that. Here he was at 80 years old as a shepherd, and he's thinking, he must have been thinking in his mind, really, God, you're calling me to deliver Egypt? I tried to do that 40 years ago as prince of Egypt. And if I couldn't do it back then as prince of Egypt, how much less would I be able to do it now as a nobody? That's a fair objection. That's a fair obstacle to consider. That question, who am I, is a question of adequacy. Am I adequate enough? And the answer, of course, was no. Moses sure didn't feel adequate enough. And how many of us feel adequate when we are called to commit our way unto the Lord? You see, as I looked over the camp stats, I noticed that the teens are in the teen sermon, so those generally are going to be 20 years and older here. I noticed that the 20-year-olds, it's probably about 130 or 140 in total, great number, marvelous, about 30% have not yet fully committed their way unto the Lord, as best as I could tell, based on the stats. And so I want to say thank you for coming, especially to all of those in your 20s. You could have been somewhere else, and I appreciate that. And I've had to think how many of you may feel also inadequate. I see there's a desire to follow the Lord, otherwise you wouldn't be here this week at camp. Some may feel, like Moses, inadequate that I am not good enough. Perhaps I've tried in the past, I've come to camp before, and it hasn't worked out. I've tried and I've failed. What's going to be different this time? And there's some truth to those statements. You've been around the block a few times. You see that life is not always quite so easy. But I want to assure you, based on the principles of God's word, that your adequacy is not what God is looking at. Just like he wasn't looking at Moses' adequacy, he states in the scripture, as he says, <clears throat> all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us are adequate. The only response is for us to come to God because he will empower us to fulfill that commitment that we make unto him. But there may be some others here in that group that may feel they are pretty adequate. They don't really need a savior. Their life is pretty moral. They're an upstanding citizen. They may even be better than some who call themselves, some who are Christians. 
And if you're in that category, I submit to you that you're probably thinking like Moses did in the first 40 years of his life. He felt powerful. He felt invincible. And it was only through the series of steps that he took as he tried it in his own power to deliver the Egyptians from, uh, the, uh, the Israelites from slavery, from the Egyptian taskmasters, that he realized his limitation. And perhaps you haven't felt that limitation yet, but eventually you will. You will experience what all people universally experience, as Moses did, that you don't have what it takes. And it's when we reach that point that it's when God can truly work in our lives to bring the necessary adequacy about. You know, I couldn't help think of, even as a believer, how often we feel inadequate because it is a journey. It's a step we take in faith, but it's many steps of faith that we take. I couldn't help but think of the uh, experience I spoke to Brother Dennis Dalek of how he experienced that inadequacy in his life as he wrestled, as he understood the business that he was running was no longer sustainable. And it folded on him as he lived in Toronto, Canada. And he felt what was next as God called him to Zambia, a foreign country. And he recognized his inadequacy. And yet, with him and Jasmine committing their way unto the Lord. And the Lord has clearly provided over the last nine years of that ministry. And those of you that know Dennis can see that he's probably on his way to be Prime Minister of Zambia pretty soon. Why? Because God has empowered him to carry out the Lifesong ministry has multiplied far beyond his capability or their capability to be able to accomplish such a great work for the Lord. Now, I consider Eastern Camp here and the blessing and the, the, the wonder of how it all works together. Truly, as we all come from literally all corners of the earth together, how all of you contribute your gifts to the operation of Eastern Camp. You think of all those, not just on the service, the, 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 the um, silent, those that are silent in the background, yet working so hard. Those who are teaching and preaching and taking care of the children in the worship ministry, in the music ministry, in, in the prayer service, and, and, and the... Um, all of those ministries, each one of you contributing as the body of Christ. And is it no surprise that as we've committed our way unto the Lord for this week, how the Lord has blessed those efforts over the years? And even if you don't have a formal position, the mentorship and the fellowship that happens, the relationships that are developing behind the scenes as you counsel, encourage, and uplift one-on-one, -on -one, the incredible work that God is doing here at Eastern Camp. Imagine if we could somehow replicate that in our home churches, if everyone could commit to that same level rather than the 80-20 that typically happens. And of course, many do that in our home churches, and that's why that they work. But how much more could we do that if we fully committed our way unto the Lord and not allow the obstacle of inadequacy? But it doesn't just end 
whether it's camp or our home churches and all the different responsibilities that are there, formal and informal. But what about the leadership that we have in the home? Those of you that are parents, I don't know if you experienced what I experienced. When we had our first child, we went to the hospital in a few hours. Baby was born and we went home. And suddenly we were alone with our new baby. And there was no manual that they gave to us. And I totally felt inadequate. How are we going to raise our daughter in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Thankfully, he equipped and equips all parents, those that desire to do that in many different ways, through the mentorship that we have of other families, through learning and reading and understanding and asking, and by the example that we not only were reared, but others that we can see. And through that, we become adequate. Not that we're perfect. We're far from perfect. We just have to ask our children that, and they'll quickly remind us of that. But if we approach such a great task with the necessary humility and seek out God's wisdom, he will provide that adequacy. You know, the foundation of the church, I believe, is built upon the health of the family. And even if you may not have a formal position, but if you are a mother and a father, you have been called to a great task, especially in the day and age that we live in, the culture that we live in, to lead and teach and mentor and encourage your children to be involved in their lives. And what a great calling that is. And if you feel inadequate, Well, join the club. I think all of us feel inadequate to varying degrees. But together, collectively, God has not left us alone to be able to carry out such a great task. And how does he do that? We read that in verse 12. We read together. When Moses asked that question, that who am I? How is this going to work? I'm inadequate. We see in verse 12, God answers that. And he says, certainly I will be with thee. I am going with you. I'm not just going to give you this task and let you go on your own. What a comfort that truly is, not just for Moses, but for all of us, that God will be with us and is with us. Now we go into the second obstacle that we say and the second question that Moses asks, and I'm going to paraphrase that in verse 13, where he basically says, well, who are you, God? In some ways, it's probably the first question he should have started with. Who are you, God? Because what we think of God is the most important thing. Why is that? Because everything else emanates from that. We can see in the world around us, those who have not put God first and have not understood who God is, we can see the chaos that ensues in the culture when that happens because they have not understood who God was and who God is. And when you don't understand who God is, you can't understand who you are because he is the center point and he is the reference point. And so as Moses asks that question, who are you, God? Look at how God responds. He says, I am that I am. A powerful word, powerful phrase, the I am. 
And he describes what he means by that. He says, Moses, I was the God of yesterday. I was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I was faithful to them. I called them out and walked through them, walked through the the hard times with them, and I was faithful to them. But it wasn't just in the past. Moses, I am here in the present. I am going to go with you to help you accomplish this great calling. And I promise you that I'm going to be there in the future. In the future, so much so, I'm going to give you a specific promise that you will remember that in the not-too-distant future, you will be here at this very point, not by yourself this time with your sheep, but with the entire Israeli people. That is my promise to you. And my brother, my sister, my friend, that is the promise that God gives to us. The I am has not changed. He has been faithful in the past, and we have far more examples of just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the entire scripture filled with his, the faithfulness of God, how he accomplished great things through weak people as he has empowered each one of them to accomplish things far greater than they could have ever dreamed to have accomplished. And so he too, as we look in the past, but also in the present, that as he calls us to commit our way more fully unto him, that he will be there with us to walk across that chasm. And when we're on the other side, as we're walking towards, as the obstacles of the mountains and the terrain may become difficult, that in the future we can be assured that he will be with us there as well, that we will not be alone, that he will be at our side. Or perhaps we should say that we will be by his side because, of course, if we go on our own way, he's not going to be with us. We need to follow him even as Christ called for his disciples to follow him, not just to go their own way. God is big enough for each of us to fully commit unto him. And if you don't feel that, that's natural. That's called doubt. And if you haven't felt doubt, that's because your God is not big enough. You have not tried to accomplish big enough things in order for you to experience doubt. Because if you're happy to just dabble in the wilderness as a shepherd, there's not much much faith required for that. There's not a lot of obstacles you need to overcome. And so there's not a lot of opportunity for doubt. But when you are called by God as a parent, as a leader in your home, as a leader in your community, add to carry out a responsibility in your church to mentor some of the young people in your lives, and you think, whoa, me? Who, who am I? Uh, and who is God? And if you have not been brought to the point of doubt, I submit to you that perhaps you haven't stepped out far enough in faith to experience that. Because when we are faced with insurmountable, insurmountable obstacles, that's when we begin to doubt, wondering, whoa, have I just overstepped? How is this really going to work out? And God says, I am that I am. 
Thankfully, Jesus encouraged us to ask, to seek, to knock, and it shall be opened to us. We are not left on our own. And he's promised to reveal what is necessary for us to accomplish whatever he's called for us to commit to. We jump now down to chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, And Moses answered and said, But behold, they, that is the Israelites, will not believe me, nor hearken unto me, unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Moses is being very realistic here. He understands the call to leadership means that not everyone is going to buy into this. And this I would characterize as the fear of rejection, a very real fear. I'm sure many of you have experienced it probably many times. That's the fear that we're going to step out outside of our comfort zone, we're going to make ourselves vulnerable, and we're going to be rejected. And there's hurt associated with that. It is not a pleasant place to be. That's the case where we try to please everyone. And we recognize if you've tried to do that in your own family, if you have, especially if you have a number of children, trying to please everyone seems to be an impossible task. And that's true for any area of responsibility that you have. And if our goal is to please people, we will, as our primary goal that is, we know we're going to fail at that. Even Jesus himself said he did not commit himself unto the people because he knew what was inside man, inside their heart. And we see that in the crowds out in the world. How easy and fickle popular opinion can be. And if we try to lead our lives by the popular opinion of the day, we will zigzag all over the place and our life will turn into chaos. But there's the flip side of that as well. Because sometimes maybe we're too bold. That's the Moses of the first 40 years. Wanting to take control, I can do this. And God had to teach him, no, you can't. But then there's the other side of Moses, the next 40 years, where he's like, I can't do this. I've tried. I'm out. And sometimes we're in that place as well where we've experienced rejection, where we've experienced hurt, where we've we've tried and we feel like we failed. But every failure is a learning opportunity. And there may be good reason for our failure. Maybe that was the thing that God needed to humble us during that time. God teaching us through that time because if everything goes right all the time, there's some hubris involved there. There's some pride that sets in that we think that we're like Midas. We can touch everything and it turns to gold. So we need those humbling experiences to understand that truly our strength comes from the Lord. We jump down now to verse 10. It says, And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of slow tongue. 
And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. What's the obstacle that Moses is calling out here? I am not sufficiently gifted. I'm not sure how true that was. I I don't really know because um, as prince of Egypt, he certainly would have uh, had some level of leadership and eloquence capability. But let's take him at his word. Let's say what he said, he wasn't exaggerating. That he really was not sufficiently gifted to take on that role. Some months ago, as I was perusing one of the... um, local community churches that we have in the area, perusing their website, looking at their statement of faith. Something caught my eye. They described their history, and there was some, it, was some, it was tumultuous. They had joined with another church. They had come together. There was a leader shakeup multiple times over the course of the last 20 years. And the statement that caught my eye, they said, we value humility and teachableness over giftedness. Let me repeat that. We value humility and teachableness over giftedness. They discovered in their journey that when people feel that they're fully gifted, the risk of a lone ranger becomes very real. And you have multiple lone rangers pulling their own way, causing all kinds of chaos and division. That's why somebody once wisely said, I much prefer a champion team over a team of champions. Being called into whatever God calls you is not primarily on your giftedness. Yes, of course, many of the positions, God clearly distributes gifts among the body of Christ and requires us to utilize them and to multiply them as he is with us to do that. But that isn't the primary way we will be judged. It's based on our humility and teachableness over the course of whatever that responsibility is, how well we work with the other brothers and sisters that are at our side, or how well we integrate within the community that we have, or how harmonious we are in our own household to bring about peace and reconciliation, or in our job, And we're given a responsibility how we can bring the team together and be a a means, a, a, a catalyst to multiply the giftedness of all the people that are involved. That is far more important than your or my specific giftedness. And yet that takes humility. It requires us to realize we don't have it all. And that God has placed others in the body of Christ. And that together, collectively, as we commit our way unto the Lord, that he will bring it to pass. Because those God calls, he will also sufficiently equip. Now we see later on as we read, verse 13, And Moses said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. Another translation renders this, but Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else, someone else, just not me. He wasn't satisfied with 
the answer that God gave to him, that God will sufficiently equip him for, what the, for the task that was ahead. And how often have I felt that way? How often have perhaps you felt that way? Say, Lord, I see the need here. I see that, that, that it needs to be done, but um, send someone else. Now, I realize that we have different personalities here. There are some that whenever there's a need there, you will jump to it before even others recognize that. And as a result, your schedule is overwhelmed. You yourself feel overwhelmed and stressed to the max. That's not what God is calling each of us to do. No, at times, those who often jump the first need to take a step back, sometimes to allow someone else, the Lord, to raise them up. And sometimes we're called to encourage them. We can recognize somebody else has perhaps that giftedness and come alongside and say, brother, sister, see, there's a need there. Would you be willing to try that out? And if they feel, oh, me? You mean me? I, I, I can't do that. Say, I can help you. I've done that before. Let me help you. Or perhaps this other person can help you. And through that, others can be drawn out of their shell, those who may be more naturally shy to accomplish and experience the blessings of the Lord when they can fully commit their way unto him. Now, it's interesting how God responds to that. He didn't say, okay, Moses, uh, you're right. All these obstacles, I'm done with you. I'm going to go find someone else. No, he didn't do that. I think he was kind of reading between the lines that Moses did not want to do it alone. And so instead of replacing Moses as Moses, I'm going to use your brother Aaron. He is going to help you. And not only Aaron, later on we see many others help Moses in the task that he was given. And isn't that so true? That at times where we feel we're the only ones the only ones carrying out this responsibility. We don't want to be alone. We want someone to join in. And God never designed it for lone rangers to be able to handle everything on our shoulders. Thankfully, there are others that he also calls. Sometimes we just need to open our eyes. Sometimes we need to just ask and seek. And God will provide. I enjoyed the forum yesterday morning <clears throat> as we discussed the autopsy of a dead church, I believe it was called. And as some of the ideas as we're discussing it, the one prominent idea that stood out to me is the whole notion of small groups, that the church can operate all of its gifts, not just in the corporate worship service here, not just as a consumer mindset, but as a small group ministry as we connect with each individually. All the church is connected in various ways and they carry out the ministry of the church, the evangelism, the prayer, the, the, the worship, the, the discipleship. All of these things can operate well in that model. And I was excited to hear that. And I think that's a great way that we all ought to consider how we can multiply the gifts that God has distributed among the body of Christ and how he will call others into that. But it reminded me of the words of one of the cardiologists at the John Hopkins University. See, he performs many hundreds of bypass surgeries, heart for, for, for heart, heart bypass surgeries for people who have blockages and unless they receive that surgery, they will certainly die. 
After he completes the procedures, he sits down with them and relays to them that what he just did is a temporary procedure. And unless they make major lifestyle changes, they will likely be dead within two years. Now you think with that kind of... uh, pronouncement over your life, you'd be pretty motivated to make some life changes. But to his surprise, 80% of the people did not make the necessary life changes. And he was dismayed by this. What is wrong? And so he decided to change his tactics. Instead of just telling them this, he said, and on top of this, we are going to meet along with the other bypass patients once a month. And we're going to go through and see how you're doing in those lifestyle changes. And as he implemented that, there was a remarkable change. Now, instead of 80% not making those changes, 80% did make those changes. Now, what changed? The pronouncement didn't change. The lifestyle requirement didn't change, but it was the accountability that changed. They were not just left on their own to try to do it on their own. And I've had to think sometimes that we do that ourselves as a fellowship. We say, we, 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 we preach the word of God. We say, a certain death, you cannot escape it. You will be lost eternally. And some respond to that. But so many others desire to, and they knew it, but they never actually follow through with that. What would change if we met on a regular basis like that in the small group and encouraged them and walked alongside them and helped them? Maybe it doesn't have to be a formal ministry of the church. That certainly could be that way. Or certainly as parents that we do that. Or to encourage them to join the Bible study so that they have that accountability How much would change if that took place when they realized they are not alone and that God would work in that way? The last obstacle I'd like to briefly touch on is that of a half-hearted commitment. We don't see this in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. We have to fast forward to Numbers chapter 20. This is now after Moses has now delivered the Israelites out of the Egyptian, from the Egyptians. They're now ready to enter the promised land. And God gives a command to Moses. And Moses half-heartedly obeys. He doesn't fully carry out the instructions that he was given. I don't fully understand why. It says he was angry and frustrated. That certainly was one reason why. But ultimately, that half-heartedness prevented him, the scripture says, from leading the children of Israel into the promised land. Now, what does that half-heartedness look like in our day and age? Well, let me illustrate this with a a true story. See, back in the Canadian grocery stores, we have um, um, a company that provides turkeys, frozen turkeys that are already marinated. One of the premium brands is called the Butterball Turkey Company. And Many would take that, put there in the freezer, and they have a toll-free number on there if you have any questions. And one time, a woman found a turkey at the bottom of her freezer, and she called the 1-800 number and said, I found this turkey. I'm pretty sure it's been in my freezer for more than 10 years. Would it be safe for me to eat this turkey? And the representative responded, well, ma'am, 
freezer burn would have probably set in. It'd become dehydrated. The skin will be leathery and tough. And while it wouldn't be unsafe, it probably wouldn't taste like turkey. She goes, oh, I know what I'm going to do with this. I'm going to give it to the church. Now, as, uh, as funny as that is, and ironically true, sad as it is, I don't think any of us, especially from the Eastern European heritage that we have, we enjoy food. We wouldn't do that. We have a high-quality standard. But isn't it sometimes that the leftovers that we can so easily give to God, the stuff that isn't really worth that much, the leftover money that we have, rather than being purposeful in our giving, or the leftover time and energy that we have. And I, and I appreciate Brother Willie Ritzman who shared, uh, I believe it was Sunday night, his testimony of how he was convicted that he was being half-hearted. He was fully committed to his job, and yet he realized he was being an absent father. He was being a not fully committing to the Lord. And God changed that in his life so that he would be fully committed I love the scripture that um, we read in, in, in Romans chapter 6, which says, As we have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. We see that in the Apostle Paul's life. He was zealous in pursuing the acute of the church. And then when he became a believer, he became zealous for the Lord's work. And isn't that a testimony that we need to do as well? That if we are gifted and energetic and all of the temporal things, and yet we're sort of half-hearted, not really there. Yeah, we'll come and, and we'll attend church, etc., but we're not really committed, not really involved. We're not following the scripture here that we are to be as zealous? Or how about the leftover time that we have? You know, we used to call it the Lord's Day as we worship together and the Lord's Day. But now Western Christianity, and I see this creeping in our churches as well, is becoming the Lord's Morning. And the rest of the day is becoming the day of recreation, the day of family, the day of relaxing. And I understand there's time for that. We, all, we cannot go 24-7. There is a time for that. But how much do we value the fellowship? And maybe it's, I don't know, that we have varied churches here. Sometimes you end early and you have a midweek service or the, the um, small groups or however you do it. The clear thing is that meeting once a week with believers is not sufficient. We need to be fully committed as we commit our way unto the Lord. And there are many other ways that we can demonstrate a half-hearted commitment on our way unto the Lord. Now, God is not calling us to be stressed-out workers for him. We just need to add some more things to that. No, for those of you that may be in that category, he may be calling you to step back. Step back to allow some others to take on some of those roles and do only the things that he has gifted you specifically to do or I specifically to do. That's not to take a vacation or to enter in retirement. And I appreciate Brother Scott and Sister Michelle as they shared a testimony with us at our church a, a week, almost two weeks ago, where they have no desire to retire. They said retirement is unbiblical. And it's true, it is unbiblical. Now things change, obviously, 
But our way of ministry will go on until God calls us home where we can be zealous for the Lord's work. And he will empower us. And I challenge you to allow the Holy Spirit in your life, in my life, to reveal what those obstacles that may be standing in our way to allow the Lord to fully use us wherever he has called us. Or what changes may need to take place. Some things may need to drop off. Some things may need to be replaced or added in. Whatever that is, I trust that the Holy Spirit will be able to minister those details in each of our lives. And when we are obedient to that, we will experience the glory and the power that God will reveal as we commit to him in obedience. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we are thankful for the powerful message we heard this evening. You are the great I am, Father. You are from everlasting to everlasting. You are the Alpha and Omega. Father, you give us the power to do the things that are of your will. And yet we heard this evening, Lord God, that we sometimes are afraid of commitment. Father, we pray as we have been encouraged this evening that we would recommit, Lord God, where we have been lacking. We ask for forgiveness as a church, as a denomination where we sat back, where we were looking at our own credentials to think and to see what we have to offer as opposed to joining you at work, because you're working all the time. We miss out on the blessing by depending on our credentials, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would give us the power of the Holy Spirit to act upon this, that we would remember, Father, that it is not to, has nothing to do with us, Lord, but that your Spirit can work through us. You have gifted everyone here, who is a believer in Jesus Christ, who are your children, Father, with something. We're all part of the body, and we know that every body part has a function. We pray, Father, for those that are here this evening that perhaps have been over the last week or months or years who have been convicted of maybe starting a ministry or getting involved in a ministry or starting something for your kingdom or for giving to your kingdom. We pray, Father, that they would act in faith. We pray, Father, that you would increase our faith, that we would remember that we are never alone, that we have you with us, Lord, in your desires to bless us, Father, that we would grow. But yet, how many times we fall short and sell ourselves short for the trinkets of this world, for the candy and the, eye, the things that please the eyes, Lord God. And we, for that, we ask for your forgiveness. We pray, Father, for those of us who don't move forward because of fear. We pray that you would forgive us where perhaps we're like the man that painted the steps on the banner behind us, but perhaps he did not want to commit all the way and he stops halfway and walks back. We pray, Father, increase our faith that we would remember that we would commit fully knowing that you are always with us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.